Will you be able to guide Olaf, Balog, and Eric back home to their Viking village? Well, let's find out with the Lost Vikings this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 105 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So I am back. Uh, Before we begin, I should probably give everyone a bit of a warning. I have very suddenly come down with a stuffy nose, so I may sound a little... uh, a little funky, and uh, hopefully I won't be sneezing or anything too much through uh, through the show. But uh, you know, the show must go on. And uh, I actually think I've been done pretty well. It's the last day of February, or the second to last day of February, something like that. Anyways, whatever. And um, I uh, said that I get shows out monthly, and uh, we had a show out in January. We have a show out in February. I have a show scheduled to come out in March. So I think this, uh, as much as I would love very much to get back to my two-week schedule that I thought I would do back when I started the show in 2012. Uh, I think being more consistent on a longer-term schedule is probably a little more enjoyable for you guys, a little easier for me to manage. So, uh, yeah, anyways, uh, <laughs> life is good. UM baby's good. She's walking around. She does this really cute thing now where if you ask her what a lion does, she goes, Rawr! which I should really record. It's super cute. But uh, anyways, uh, things have been warming up. Snow is uh, mostly gone here in Toronto. Uh, doesn't mean it won't come back. But, uh, you know, win- winter seems to be, even though it's only end of February, early March, seems to be winding down a little. Uh, might mean that I might get my bike out a little sooner than uh, than uh, I had intended, which uh, which is probably... A good thing, but enough about that. We got uh, we got some show to do. We got a couple of emails to discuss and uh, a lot of fun stuff. So let's get right to it. So we got a couple of emails. Uh, the first one comes from Mike, and Mike writes, Hi, Joe. I'd like to belatedly express the sigh of relief and internal woohoo of excitement I felt when on a lark I visited umbcast.com a few weeks ago and saw a new episode at the top of the page. It happened to be my birthday, and man, what a nice little ribbon to wrap up what was already a very nice day. I listened with bated breath and intense trepidation to see if my email from way back would be right on the air, and yeah, it was kind of thrilling to hear my words read back to me by the man who immortalized the words DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Uh, Almost as good as the time I won a contest to have Morgan Freeman follow me around for 24 hours and narrate my day. Although that got kind of annoying when I was trying to go to sleep and he kept on describing me trying to go to sleep. Anyway, as a big fan of Robin Hood uh, mythos and having recently read Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, I really enjoyed your coverage of Defender of the Crown. I vaguely remember playing that game or a very similar Knights and Castles themed uh, turn based strategy game from the early Dawson Windows XP gaming era when I was a very wee lad but I was much too wee at the time to understand the game or even remember much of it today. Still, the theme and gameplay elements you described has moved Defender of the Crown close to the top of my retro to-play list. 
Unfortunately, what with work and a general preference for playing outside, I haven't been playing many computer games at all lately, retro or otherwise. The only significant exception has been rediscovering an old family favorite from the Dawson pre-Windows XP gaming era, Epic Pinball. I downloaded the collection from GOG and have been playing a few games each day at work to blow off some steam between jobs on my bicycle shop. Uh, this game, along with Lemmings and Jezball, holds a special place in my family history as it is one of the few video games that my mom became addicted to when we were kids. Uh, rather than this leading to any sort of neglect, although dinner might have been late one or two on one or two occasions, we ended up getting to spend more quality bonding time with her as we'd often wake up at 2 a.m. to find her playing in the family computer room and she'd usually let us stick around to watch uh, and complete and compete with her for high scores until the wee hours of the morning. Eventually, epic pinball mania infected our entire family and led to some crazy shenanigans. I remember my dad picking me up from school one afternoon and telling me, just wait till you see the high scoreboard on the jungle table. He wouldn't tell me how much he beat me by, just let me stew in passenger seat anxiety until we got home and I ran to the computer to check. He'd apparently spent his day off putting up some crazy high score that blew my old high score out of the water. I immediately sat down for a marathon session, playing game after game until I finally had a game where everything went my way, racking up extra ball after extra ball and jackpot after jackpot. I had beaten dad's score 10 minutes ago and still had three balls left to play when my brother walked in. He he saw what was going on and flipped the light switch in the room. Uh, this was a single switch that controlled all of the electricity in that room. The computer shut down and the screen went black, but all I saw was red. My dad deserves some sort of meta-parenting high score for somehow keeping me from throwing the computer at him, using my incredibly Herculean, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry about losing my high score strength, and admonished my brother for trying to score points with him, dad, by making me lose all of mine. I was compensated in some way and ended up achieving the top score a few days later anyway, so all's well that ends well. My family history is full of stories such as these. I figured I'd share one because hearing other UMB listeners talk about their family memories related to the DOS and Windows XP gaming era is one of my favorite parts of your podcast. To wrap it up, so glad that you're back on the air and best wishes to Mrs. Upper Memory Block and the UM Baby. Looking forward to Lost Vikings. Toodles, Mike. Well, thank you, Mike. And, you know, I actually do get a, a, a bunch of... Uh, People in the you know on Twitter and in the Facebook group that do speak very very uh, fondly of uh, Epic Pinball, and it's not one that not something I ever spent a ton of time with, but uh, from all the stories I hear about it, it is a uh, definitely definitely one to uh, to have on the list. So thanks for that, and uh, all your references to the Dawson pre Windows XP gaming era makes me uh, reminds me of uh, of this bumper that Trolls sent me. Hi, I'm the Space Quest historian. But I very much recommend that you listen to the Upper Memory Block podcast, where Joe Mestriani talks about games from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. <laughs> I haven't played that one in a while. Uh, we have one more little note from Ricky, and uh, he writes, Hey, Joe, thumbs up on getting the podcast up and going again. Uh, this was a great episode. Defender of the Crown was one of my favorite games growing up, and I spent many hours playing it on the C64 and on the Amiga. 
A quick note about the Amiga theme used on the podcast. It sounds like it was recorded in PAL mode, so it is playing at a slower speed than it's supposed to. Now, the game was designed in the US, so it was meant to be played in NTSC mode. NTSC PAL differences were never really an issue for DOS games, but were a big thing in the C64 Amiga platforms. Uh, many games made in Europe for PAL won't even run on NTSC machines, or they run at the wrong speed, etc. Well, thanks, Ricky, and... Uh, you know, that it's actually interesting because, uh, you know, whenever I can to sort of save time and stuff, I, I poke around the Internet and see if anyone's already done rips of, uh, of the game music and uh, and stuff like that. So so this time I actually went to uh, to GOG. And, and when you get the game, you get a whole bunch of goodies and stuff like that that uh, that come with it. And one of the things that was packaged up with the game was uh, was a recording of the soundtrack. And uh, and that's what I used. So it'd be interesting to know if uh, whoever or however the soundtrack that is included there was ripped. It, it seems like that was ripped out of the PAL uh, version of the game instead of the NTSC version. And if I was smart, I would have just gone to Tomer's website like I actually pointed out in the show and linked in the show notes and just pulled his really, really good uh, game rip game audio rips from uh from uh, Defender of the Crown. So uh, thanks for that. And uh, I may have to go back and <laughs> and, uh, and listen to uh, the ones on Tomer's site versus uh, the ones from GOG and see how they are different. Okay, that is that. Let's get on with uh, the rest of the show. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so this time around, I'm going to be touching on a game that uh, I've always had a bit of an interest in, The Lost Vikings. So The Lost Vikings is a series of two games, uh, the first of which was published by Interplay and developed by a little-known company I've talked about uh, tangentially uh, before called Silicon and Synapse. And this first game came out in the year 1992. So with that in mind, let's get on to the genre. Uh, this is uh, this is a genre I've uh, I've touched on once or twice. Uh, Lost Vikings is a 2D puzzle platformer, and uh, what does this mean? You may ask. Well, to start, a platformer is a type of uh, action game in which you guide one or more characters across a world that's composed of a series of suspended platforms. Hence the name platformer. So these platforms tend to be spaced unevenly and need to be traversed using a series of ladders, bridges, ropes, chains, and potentially even your character's own unique movement abilities, which tend to involve some sort of jumping, floating, grappling, gliding, you know, anything like that. So to win a platformer, you're usually required to traverse a series of, uh, of levels strewn with, with these platforms that I've talked about, but also with obstacles and uh, enemies. Uh, your offensive capabilities can range from nothing to uh, simple things like uh, bopping your enemies on the head all the way to uh, modern or mythical weaponry. Uh, death in a platformer comes in a wide variety of forms, including falling into pits, either bottomless or otherwise danger-filled, uh, taking damage from enemies, or simply running out a timer. So that's a platformer. But there's more to this game than that. This is a puzzle platformer. Uh, this takes the traditional platformer paradigm and uses it to drive a series of puzzles. Uh, traditionally, the puzzles in puzzle platformers revolve around uh, figuring out the path 
through complex levels with uh, either limitations on resources, abilities, or time, like, uh, like I said. So not only do you need to simply survive, but you also need to use your brain to figure out the path out of uh, the current level to succeed. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. All right, so let's talk story. Now, given the level of silliness and humor we're going to see uh, is present in this game, uh, the backstory is it's pretty much uh, equally silly. As the game begins, we come across a Viking village replete with women, children, and, of course, stout and bearded Viking men. Now, it's not just any day in the village, but it is a day of celebration of the fall harvest. Uh, the pinnacle of these harvest festivities was the hunt. At noon, the best huntsmen from the village gather. Uh, the one that collects the most game by sunset wins. And all the game from the hunt uh, supplies the feast that night. So as the horn calls to begin the hunt, three Vikings who live outside of town are nowhere to be seen. Uh, these three Viking friends are Olaf the Stout, Balog the Fierce, and Eric the Swift. Uh, they all come out of their, their huts and realize that they are late. Now, instead of heading into town, they decide to join the hunt directly so as not to give everyone else too much of a head start. As the hunt progresses, uh, other things are happening high in space above the Viking village. Tomator infamous intergalactic zookeeper was approaching the planet uh, a fiery vortex opens up and his ship emerges kind of near just above uh, the village it turns out tomator is on the hunt for new specimens for his zoo and uh this kind of piddly little planet seems as good as any a place to look so as the hunt concludes olaf Balog, and eric return to their cottages not noticing the strange craft that appears of over their heads uh, it turns out that while they had a successful hunt of their own, they did not realize that they were also being targeted as prey. Tomator selects the three Vikings as his specimens to collect from the planet Earth. Uh, the Viking friends are slowly levitated from their beds into Tomator's waiting ship, and uh, there's really nothing they can do to counter the forces pulling them from their homes. Now, with his work completed, Tomator pilots his ship away. Uh, however... The teleportation process, which usually deposits your acquisitions into the specimen room for processing, uh, fails. Something goes wrong. Instead of delivering the Vikings to the specimen room, it deposits them randomly in the corridors of Tomator's ship. Now, while the Vikings are far from being out of the woods, they now at least have a chance to try to escape and return home. As we begin the game, our three friends have just been freed from the teleportation process and are ready to roll. Okay, let's talk gameplay. So, after the intro, we are left in control of the three Vikings. Our goal, as you may or may not have guessed, is to escape Tomato's ship and return home. Now, to accomplish this feat, we'll need to use the special talents of each Viking at times individually and at other times in combination. Uh, to successfully complete a level, all three Vikings must be brought to the exit alive and well. Now, since these Vikings will be our tools in this world, uh, let's meet them a bit more officially. Each Viking offers us two different skills, a primary and a secondary. Now, firstly, we have Eric 
the Swift. Now, Eric fancies himself the leader of our little band, and uh, he's also the fastest moving and most acrobatic of the three. Eric is the only Viking who can jump, and uh, he also has a hard head, which allows him to take a running charge and break down certain barriers. On the downside, Eric has no offensive or defensive skills at all, aside from his ability to evade. Next, we have our warrior, Balog the Fierce. Balog wields a sword for close-in combat and a bow and arrow for ranged attacks. Uh, the bow can also be used to trigger switches and buttons from a distance. Uh, well, it's said a strong offense is a good defense. Balog may have taken this too far as he has no way to block an incoming attack. Finally, the missing link in the party is Olaf the Stout. Olaf is the biggest of the group and carries a large shield. Now, he can use this shield to defend himself and his teammates from most attacks, and he can also hold his, hold his shield above his head to give another Viking a boost or to use it as a sort of airfoil-slash-parachute, allowing him to glide and maneuver very well while in freefall. So each Viking begins a level with three health points, and uh, one or all of those health points can be lost at once, depending on the degree of damage that is uh, taken by the Viking. If one of your Vikings happens to die, the only way to succeed is to learn from your mistake, start the level over, and try again. Now, most levels begin in the same way. The Vikings are deposited at the start, and you begin guiding them through using their skills to overcome obstacles. Uh, you see a key in an elevated spot, Maybe Eric can jump to get it. Still too high up? Well, maybe try to get him to stand on top of Olaf's shield and uh, jumping from that higher starting point. As you play, you definitely begin to form a little bit of a base strategy. Uh, my general approach is to keep the Vikings together as much as possible. Uh, I'd usually begin scouting around a bit with Eric due to his speed and jumping ability. Then once I decided on a, a bit of a direction, I would move Olaf, who acts as uh, basically you know a one-sided shield wall, and uh, if I come across an enemy, I'd move Olaf towards him till that enemy comes in contact with his shield. And from there, I'd use Balog's bow and arrow to take the enemy out. I actually rarely used his uh, his sword because you really have to be right up on the enemy and, uh, you know, you can sort of have a threat of, uh, of taking damage that way. Sorry, because once the enemy is taken out, uh, I'd keep moving Olaf forward with the other two following close behind and jumping out into danger if their skills were needed to continue pressing on. Of course, what kind of platformer would be complete without items and power-ups? Uh, the Vikings are able to collect items like food or steak to restore health. Uh, a shield gives uh, a, a bonus fourth hit point to whichever Viking decides to use it. Uh, bombs destroy barriers or inflict damage to enemies. Smart bombs wipe the screen of all enemies. Flaming arrows, a one-shot kill. Gravity boots counteract some of the gravity obstacles in the world. And of course, a variety of keys, buttons, and switches that can be and must be interacted with uh, are all strewn around the various levels of the game. Now, each Viking can carry up to four items in their inventory, so when you do pick up a power-up, they don't actually have to be used immediately. Uh, if two Vikings are standing near each other, they can even trade items. This is very handy if uh, one Viking takes a hit and the other has the health items, or if uh, you know one Viking picked up a key, but you need the other's skill to actually uh, get to where you're going to uh, open a door. So as you progress through the game's 34 levels, you will quickly realize the path home is not 
as straightforward as you thought. You quickly escape Tomitor's ship. However, you jump into another sort of interdimensional vortex, which begins your journey through space and time, eventually culminating in a final showdown with Tomator himself, where you'll have to use all of your skill, ingenuity, and your Viking special talents in combination to win the day and return you to your family and your simple village life. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... To run Lost Vikings on your PC, uh, you needed to have at least a 386SX with 640K of RAM and DOS 3.1. Now, from an audio perspective, the game supported a standard array of 1992-era hardware, including the AdLib, Sound Blaster, Pro Audio Spectrum, and various flavors of uh, Roland devices. Uh, the music track, one for each of the game's different worlds, uh, were composed by Charles Deenan, uh, at least for the original SNES version. Now, Deenan was a pioneer in game audio, writing sound drivers for his Commodore PET at the age of 13. Uh, after that, he'd go on to transition from driver coding to actual music composition, eventually moving away from the Netherlands over to the US and getting headhunted by Interplay after spending only six months with uh, Virgin Games. He went on to compose the music for Fallout, Another World, Planescape Torment, and of course, the Lost Vikings. Uh, he did not, however, compose the music for the DOS version of the game. That job fell to Glenn Stafford, who was a composer back at Silicon and Synapse. Of course, anyone who's a Warcraft music fan knows Stafford, having heard his music in Starcraft and all the Warcrafts <laughs> except the original. Uh, the Lost Vikings was actually his first job. He was hired on uh, a one-week trial basis and given the task of converting the SNES soundtrack to MIDI for the DOS port of the game. Now, Lost Vikings was playable with a keyboard, joystick, or a Gravis gamepad. Uh, the explicit inclusion of that gamepad does make a lot of sense as this game was targeted originally for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System as a primary platform, at least from the perspective of Interplay, the uh, publisher. Now, graphically, you probably wouldn't be overly surprised to hear that this game runs in VGA. However, what you may notice if you look a little bit closer is that this game does not run in the standard 320 by 200 resolution that VGA runs it, but in a slightly tweaked 320 by 240 pixels. Uh, this is referred to as VGA Mode X. Now, Mode X is an alternate display mode that was entirely undocumented in any VGA specifications. It was much more difficult to program for when compared to the standard 320 by 200 VGA mode known as Mode 13H. Uh, mode 13H used a standard bitmap solution 
to tell the graphics hardware what to put on the screen. So a bitmap, as I may have explained before in uh, previous episodes, is quite easy for humans to comprehend conceptually. For each pixel on the screen, a byte of data would store its color index within the range of VGA's 256 available colors. Uh, the first location would define the first pixel, the second, the second, and so on and so forth. Now mode X, or tweaked VGA mode, doesn't work via bitmap, but via a different memory mode that VGA natively supports named planar mode. So instead of each memory location referencing a single pixel, in planar mode, each location in the array now references four pixels or a plane of pixels. Now, outside of being much more complex to handle, this mode offered quite a few advantages over mode 13H. Uh, firstly, the 320 by 240 resolution changed the 4 by 3 aspect ratio of VGA to a 1 to 1 aspect ratio. This means that pixels were no longer rectangular, but square. Uh, this allowed artists to create art that is arguably more pleasing to the eye. I know art is subjective, but generally if things are proportional, we tend to uh, like them better. <laughs> In addition, the fact that four pixels were now being referenced in a single memory location instead of one uh, allowed a few technical advantages. Firstly, this allowed four pixels to be processed in parallel, improving rendering performance by up to four times over mode 13H. Secondly, since mode X uses four times less memory than mode 13H, there was a lot of video RAM, video memory left over. Uh, this allowed for additional enha enhancements such as uh, page flipping. I believe this is also known as double buffering. Uh, and this allowed the hardware to store an entirely separate set of display information in memory, but not show it on the screen. And they sort of called this off-screen memory. Uh, when graphics required updating, the off-screen memory could be quickly swapped in, creating much quicker and smoother animations. So why was Modex not widely used? Well, programming it was sort of a nightmare compared to the straightforward bitmap of mode 13H. And... Uh, you know, as I said, it was entirely undocumented. The mode was popularized by a programmer named Michael Abrash. Abrash? Abrash? I don't know. I'm bad at names. Uh, in the July 1991 edition of Dr. Dobbs Journal, which was a popular uh, journal aimed at programmers at the time. I actually found a copy of this uh, article and, and read through it. And, you know, yes, I have an undergrad in computer science and I did all this you know, algorithm stuff, blah, 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 etc. And yeah, this is some pretty low level stuff. Like it was, it's, it's not straightforward. So it, it sort of hurt my brain when I was, uh, when I was looking at it, but, uh, Hey, if you could figure out how to use it, you could really eke some great performance and some cool looking stuff out of VGA. You're listening to the upper memory block podcast. Time for Okay, dev story time. Now, I love covering Blizzard. Of course, unlike the last time I did this, when I talked Warcraft, uh, we're much earlier in the company's timeline here. I'm about 99.9% .9 sure all this stuff in the release of this game took place back when they were known as Silicon and Synapse. Now, Silicon and Synapse was founded by three friends, Alan Adam, Frank Pierce, and Mike Morheim. Uh, they started off simply uh, working mainly on ports of existing games to different platforms. This sort of allowed them to get their feet wet with current technology and programming techniques. And, uh, you know, eventually 
they began to drift away from from porting other people's games to various uh, PC platforms like the Amiga and the Atari ST and uh, you know the PC, and uh, you know aim their focus more towards the the burgeoning console market. Uh, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System had recently released, and the guys decided they would jump on the bandwagon uh, as early as they could and do a port of their own. Uh, they pulled out an old EA title they all liked called Racing Destruction Set and redeveloped it for the SNES and called it RPM Racing. Now, to do this, they basically ended up recoding the entire game in uh, 65-816 assembler with uh, Adam, the uh, UCLA computer science graduate, doing the bulk of the programming work. Uh, they'd do this on... Uh, in 65816 assembler and uh, they'd cross compile it into something the development system that they were using for the SNES would uh, be able to understand. Now the claim, I don't have any verification of this outside of the fact that someone wrote it in a Wikipedia article is that RPM Racing was one of the first SNES games that was developed uh in the US, most of the other ones being uh, released uh, or developed in Japan and uh, you know first party Nintendo and other Japanese uh, titles. And uh, it released in November of 1991. Uh, its other claim to fame is that it was also supposedly one of the first SNES games to leverage the console's high-resolution graphics mode that offered more resolution at the cost of colors. Uh, now, if you remember all the advertising around the SNES when it first came out, there was this whole push for Mode 7 graphics and... Uh, you know, the SNES titled this as, as revolutionary and blah, blah, blah. I don't believe that this high-res mode was actually Mode 7 because Mode 7 still supported, I think, the full uh, color range. But uh, it was one of the, the lower modes. There are actually six other graphics modes in uh, in the SNES. And basically, they all worked with different varieties of... Uh, you know, background layering, parallaxing, uh, color depth for each of the the background layers and, and stuff like that. It actually is pretty interesting how the uh, the graphics chip in the SNES uh, did all of its work. But uh, this podcast is not about the Super Nintendo, so I will not talk about it very deeply. If you are interested in the SNES, you should uh, go uh, check out my friend Greg over at the SNES podcast. They do uh, a lot of reviews, much like I do, but uh, more focused on or completely focused on the SNES. So go check him out. Uh, I guessed on his show a little while back and had a lot of fun doing it. So with the success of RPM Racing, the uh, the team decided that the time for ports had passed. It was time for them to do something original. Now, at the time, around 1991, everyone at Silicon and Synapse, I think they may have been about 12 people at this point, uh we're playing a ton of Cygnosis's Lemmings, which I've covered. I covered way back in like episode thirty something. Uh, they found the cute little sprites endearing, and they were very impressed with the way the huge number of lemmings on screen created this this sense of urgency and how applying different skills to the individual lemmings uh, in different combinations allowed for very creative uh, puzzles and very uh, you know varying solutions. They decided they wanted to do their own spin on this concept. So, you know, maybe it was original content, but the idea wasn't super original uh, necessarily. But instead of Lemmings, they were going to make their games a game about hundreds of Vikings trying to traverse puzzles using a variety of skills. 
Now, the company still had a publishing agreement with Interplay, and uh, one of its contractual requirements uh, as part of that agreement was to deliver a generic scripting engine for platform games. Uh, this suited the soon-to-be Blizzard team just fine, as uh, you know, the infusion of cash and resources, and you know, developers and artists and, and all that stuff that the uh, that Interplay provided them would allow them to create an engine and uh, you know, fine, hand it off to uh, to to Interplay. But you know, they could also use it to build uh, their own game. Well, Interplay would go on to use this engine for the rest of their platformers for for quite a while to come. Uh, the Silicon and Synapse team would also uh, take the same engine with them and uh, and take it even further using it as the basis for the map editor for their eventual blockbuster real-time strategy franchises warcraft and starcraft now one of the other caveats of uh, their interplay deal was that they despite the fact that they were starting to take an interest in the pc again were still required to target games for the super nintendo uh, as they got deeper into the uh, development of Lost Vikings, they realized that, you know, while the PC could handle hundreds of their lemming Vikings on screen, the SNES could not. Uh, instead of their 100 Vikings, they cut it down to five. And from there, they cut it down to the three Vikings we know today. Uh, as Mike Morheim built out many of the levels, uh, many of the different cultural and design aspects of uh, the Blizzard that we would come to know began to form uh, with lost vikings everyone in the company was a tester they played the game over and over and over again with a very deep attention to detail uh in addition especially when uh testing a puzzle game uh Morheim stressed the importance of external testing uh, the team could test all they wanted and that had value of finding bugs and issues and things you know not working as intended but you know, all everyone who worked on the team knew the game intimately. So to figure out if the game was was too easy or too hard, they had to keep bringing in fresh batches of external testers as the tendency of the team was to make the early levels too challenging, causing players to get frustrated and to quit. Now, this was the beginning of uh, some of Blizzard's most basic game design rules that, uh, you know, first and foremost, a game had to be fun. I mean, this sounds like almost a stupid rule to have as a game company, but, uh, you know, as, as we've seen over our, our careers as uh, as PC and console gamers, not all games are fun. So I think a lot of companies lose sight of that in, in you know, in amidst other goals of, you know, maybe trying to make some technological breakthrough, trying to make something overly artistic or trying to, you know, meet a sales deadline or, or, or something like that. And And, you know, when a game stops being fun, is it really even a game anymore? Who knows? So in addition to all this, you know, cool sort of Blizzard cultural stuff, uh, The Lost Vikings was also the first of the team's games where some humor was starting to be layered in. Uh, the intro, the simple cutscenes, the Vikings' idle animations, uh, Olaf's butt crack, and the fact that the Vikings ridicule you if you fail a level too many times in a row all show the beginnings of the sense of humor present in games today like world of warcraft overwatch and uh, and hearthstone each viking each environment in the lost vikings you know everything was sort of given a unique personality so with all this after about a year of development uh the game released in 1992 on the snes with the amiga cd32 dos and uh genesis versions following pretty soon 
thereafter. Uh, the game's basic concept and gameplay were very well received, as was its self-deprecating and fourth wall breaking sense of humor. Uh, some technical aspects of the different versions were compared, with some reviewers preferring the music in the SNES version over those of the PC, blah, 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 a lot like Defender of the Crown. Last time around, each version had some you know, limitations or improvements or, or whatever, but you know, the game was generally well reviewed. With this success, five years later, in 1997, the sequel, Lost Vikings 2, Norse by Norse West, would be released. Uh, this game, designed by Ron Miller and Chris Metzen, featured the same basic gameplay as the original game. Uh, however, the Vikings have some new abilities. Outside of the uh, the two abilities that they each already had, Eric also had uh, access to turbo boots, which give him more jumping ability, along with a helmet, which allowed swimming. Uh, Balog now somehow has a bionic arm for uh, ranged attacks and a and uh, also for bionic commando style swinging from uh, from special hotspots. And Olaf can release gas because <laughs> he's a fat guy, giving him some limited vertical mobility in addition to being able to shrink and fit into tiny spaces. Uh, two new characters were also added to the game, perhaps the uh, the two that were cut when they originally cut the first game down to five. Uh, we have Fang, who is a werewolf, and Scorch, uh, a dragon, who each also have unique skills. Given this was 1997, uh, the characters were voiced uh, by some fairly well-known professional voice actors, uh, including Rob Paulson, Jim Cummings, and Frank Welker. Uh, interestingly, the sequel's development actually uh, diverged with Blizzard doing the PC and Saturn versions with pre-rendered 3D graphics and uh, another developer called Beam Software doing the SNES version uh, in a cartoony style similar to the original. Uh, the Blizzard version reviewed quite well, though some complained the 3D graphics were sort of subpar for the time. Uh, overall, though, both entries into the Lost Vikings franchise were considered successful. Yo, Blockers! This is Amiru Nakago, and you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. Keep being awesome, and remember, it is pitch black. You are likely to be eaten by a Gru. So, what does the future hold for the Lost Vikings? Well, we've heard from Blizzard pretty succinctly that there is not anything in the works for a Lost Vikings 3. However... This doesn't mean the Vikings have been left to rot. Uh, back in February of 2015, Archrio was added as a single specialist hero in Blizzard's awesome MOBA Heroes of the Storm. Now, I haven't played Heroes at all. Uh, I only hear things from people that it is a very good, very fun, very approachable uh, MOBA, unlike some uh, some other versions of, uh, of that genre. Uh, as I said, not a MOBA guy, so can't speak to their utility in the game, but it is really awesome to see uh blizzard sort of acknowledging their roots like like this so where can you get your hands on lost vikings today well, again, with Blizzard looking to their past, uh, you can actually get the original game directly from them. Just head over to us.blizzard.com slash n-us slash games slash legacy. I'll let, 
link that in the show notes, but it was English enough that I could read it. Uh, so just head over there and grab it, complete with embedded DOSBox, sort of a la GOG.com. Uh, you can also grab a bunch of other games there too, including Rock and Roll Racing, Blackthorn, Warcraft 1, and maybe Warcraft 2, and also the original Diablo. Uh, Lost Vikings 2 does not seem to have a digital source, so the old roots of, of eBay would probably be the way to go for that. Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence. Okay, so one real quick little note uh, with regard to Lost Vikings from Axel, and he writes, uh, this game basically taught me proper English coming from Norway. It was also a bit of a laugh that ancient Vikings were abducted by spacemen. I had lots of fun uh, with the trio figuring out ways to get further in the game. My favorite was the little running guy. Looking forward to this one. Well, thanks, Axel. And uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've talked about this a lot, mostly with like uh, Sierra Adventure Games. I know Trolls talks about it a lot too. And, uh, you know, how these games, being that they were English primarily and, uh, you know, distributed in other countries, sometimes in translation, but probably more often than not, in their original English versions, it's uh, exposed people who, uh, you know, of uh, how do we how do we say it way back in the day, nationally challenged people <laughs> to uh, to uh, to learn English. And, uh, you know, I think really, really helpful uh, overall. OK, so. I guess it is now time for the big, uh, the big part of the show. Does Lost Vikings hold up today? Well, like I said, way back in the beginning, I've known about this game forever, but never really played it myself, or at least never played it much. I think I may have known someone who had it, and I saw it being played for like five minutes, but I don't really have any specific memories of it aside from some ads and the fact that it seemed interesting. So I wasn't really sure what to expect. And, you know, I'll say... The graphics and sound come across as a bit dated. It really does kind of scream SNES uh, to me a little bit. However, I would say that the basic gameplay loop is pretty satisfying. Uh, while the levels do get progressively more difficult, the curve is, is pretty steady, and each level does have a pretty intuitive flow. Uh, I occasionally found myself getting a little bit stuck, but, you know, trial and error would usually win out and not even really a ton of it. Sort of like, you know, maybe you try something twice and you go, oh, I'll try to go this way. And, and then you just you sort of figure it out. And, and I think because of that sort of natural, intuitive flow, getting your Vikings to the end is is certainly satisfying. On top of this, like I've explained in, in the various uh, sections that, that have gone by already, the, the game's writing and general humor sort of makes you chuckle. <laughs> just when you, you're fed up with things and you're about to put the game down. Uh, you know, it's not to say it's all good. There's a few frustrations. First and foremost are uh, the levels with more complex jumping puzzles. I got pegged pretty hard on a certain level. I think it might have been level 9 or level 10 in my third YouTube research session. You can go find that over on the channel. And my frustration is pretty apparent. I think I died like 17 times jumping from one bubble to another bubble. I hate jumping puzzles. I think a lot of people do. Uh you know, coupled with this irritation with jumping puzzles is uh, is death. So if one of your three Vikings happens to die, you're basically screwed. Uh, the only choice you have is to restart the level from scratch. I think the game really would benefit from from some mechanism 
to revive your Vikings? I mean, if you're way close to the end of a level and one of your Vikings dies, if, if there's something you could do, some sort of more complicated action you could take to go and, and save them, might have made the game a little bit less frustrating. Now, those issues aside, though, Lost Vikings is a very fun game. You can get it for free, so why not give it a whirl? At the very least, it'll give you some insight into how Blizzard's game design philosophy was in their early days. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, so that is that. So for the month of March, I actually have a guest show in the wings. Uh, Father Beast submitted a great episode on the 1994 microprose business sim Transport Tycoon. So that's the next game we're going to be hitting. So expect a, a show from Father Beast coming in March. Now, despite the fact that the show's already recorded and I've got it, you know, where it needs to be and all that, I am still planning on giving uh, Transport Tycoon the full treatment. I'll be playing it on, on YouTube uh, for a little bit. And uh, also, I will be reading out emails as an addition to Father Beast Podcast. So don't be shy. As always, please send me email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Uh, I think because I don't have an actual show to do in March, I'm going to start uh, poking around for uh, a Saturday or a Sunday to do uh, our our next Patreon hangout. So I think th- there may be two releases in March, so that should be fun. So like I said, uh, emails to podcastumbcast.com. Uh, thanks to Rick Moyer for his amazing audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, please, please, please support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, your support is, is immensely appreciated now that, uh, especially now that my expenses in life are are slightly higher on account of the UM baby. Uh, so, you know, your your support definitely helps me uh, keep the show rolling, web hosting, podcast hosting, Photoshop paying for and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash show. Me personally, twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the show on YouTube, as I said, at youtube.com slash umbcast. There I'm, I'm putting up videos of my game research sessions, and I have another cool project that's uh, sort of half done. And uh, once I'm a little further into it, I'm going to start putting out some videos on that uh, probably weekly. So look for some more stuff over on the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. That is that. We will see you next time for Transport Tycoon here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.